I'm Rachel Hocking. Welcome to episode 12 of Take It Black, coming to you from our NITV studios on Camaragal land in the city now known as Sydney. Today, my co-host is Bianca Hunt from Yokai Footy down on Coolin land in Melbourne. And a little later, we're going to be joined by Ahmed Yusuf from The Feed to yarn about his recent interview with the former AFL Collingwood player, Retia Lumumba. B, welcome to Take It Black. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who's your mob? What are you doing at Yokai Footy? Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Um, so my mob is dad's side is Gamilori and Barkindji, uh, which is New South Wales and Victoria areas. And mum is Belladung and Wadjuk, so that's WA. Um, somehow my parents met in Alice in the heart of the country. Hey. <laughs> Had my eldest sister. Yeah, no, chucked it all the way there to me. Had my eldest sister in, in Alice and then moved to Brisbane, which is where they started their life up. Um, I was born the year that, I think the year or two after they had moved. And then my younger brother came along. So I've grown up as a Murray um in every way possible a lot of my um you know just how I grew up was just very love the sun um our slang was like quite different and then when I checked it down to Sydney I learned you know a little bit more of a curry way of, of living and now that I'm in Melbourne um can't say I've I've been able to be out that much because of COVID <laughs> um but I'm definitely adding to my cultural knowledge being able to move around a little bit yeah, you ticked off nearly everything except the Torres Strait there, sis. Yeah, true. I mean, well, look, I have gone to the Torres Strait. I went there last year, only to Thursday in Hammond Island. Um, but Beautiful. probably wouldn't live there because it's very, very hot. I'm, I like hot, but it, uh, very hot there. <laughs> but, yeah, so uh, obviously I'm in Melbourne now for um, Yokai Footy. So that's pretty pretty deadly. I'm a co-host with Tony um, Armstrong, who's a former player for Collingwood and think a couple other teams but he's got a, a decent career in footy um and yeah we've just kind of done 17 episodes with about another 17 or so to go <laughs> wow I mean look it's pretty awesome to know that we have football commentary in this country done by blackfellas something that we don't see enough of and something that historically hasn't been around obviously we've had mungrook for a long time a bloody deadly footy show as well and to see young people like yourself and tony talking on yoka has been really cool for an afl fan like myself every week um i just want to talk about something that happened recently on yoka a few weeks ago you made a pretty mm -hmm. damning statement about the media landscape now you particularly called out the boys club that has characterized a lot of sports journalism and you singled out one particular commentator. Let's take a listen. This week, Channel 9 and Sam Newman <clears throat> mutually parted ways after Newman called the late George Floyd a crackhead, a porn star and a piece of shit. Enough to lose your job, right? But then again, so is sexualising female journalists live on air. So is calling a Malaysian man a monkey, then comparing him to Serena Williams. So is demeaning little people or making transphobic slurs. So is blackface and how it made Nikki feel, along with the rest of our mob. Surely each of these warranted a mutual parting of Newman and Network, right? So why now? Perhaps it's because the tide is slowly turning. Maybe 
thanks to films like The Final Quarter and The Australian Dream and courageous journalists like Caroline Wilson and Susie O'Brien, Australia is evolving into a more accountable place. One that doesn't tolerate entertainment underpinned by bigotry. One that cuts through the boys club when they close ranks and defend bigots. Maybe viewers are at last demanding entertainment that doesn't demean diversity, but celebrates it. If that sounds like your cup of tea, stick with us. Whilst Newman might be finished, we're just getting started. This is your guy footy. B, some pretty powerful words there. I remember the week that this happened. The clip was being shared everywhere. What was the reaction like for you? Well, you know what's really interesting is earlier um, in the, like a couple of days before when this monologue was getting chosen to be written, right, um, a lot of people were kind of checking in with me being like, are you, you know, are you okay with this going out? Like you're going to cop some, you know, you're going to cop it. Um, and, you know, people were checking in on me and stuff like that. And I was like, well, you know what? Right now, the way that I guess media is portrayed for black fellas at the moment, a lot of the time we're going to be seen as political no matter what. So mm -hmm. whatever I say is going to either be taken really well or not taken well at all. Um, so I, I kind of said, look, I could be in the media for a year and a year only, or I could be in it for a lifetime, but I want to make sure that I'm putting a voice out. Um, that's representative as well you know like we've got to call people out and especially when they've done the wrong thing for so long you know sam newman um has had a career uh, further than my lifetime um and so being in that sort of position where i could have a bit of a say and could be a bit cheeky but also address facts you know these things happened what he said happened so there was nothing out of line um, but when it comes to, you know, boys club, like for me, I'm in a unique position, realistically, I'm a young black woman speaking to football, which is very rare, um, because it's always been led by men for one, and then also led by old white men. So, yeah. you know, I'm almost the complete opposite to be commentating, um, on kind of the current landscape of, of what's going on. So I knew automatically that there was going to be a bit of a pushback from especially Sam's followers. Um, but to be honest, I was quite surprised with the reaction media took to it. Um, almost every article that went out said journalist or um, journalist powerful monologue um, to Sam Newman or something like that. Like a lot of it was surrounding a really positive reaction. And this is um, like mainstream media that we're talking about, you know, like yeah, the Daily Mail. Yeah, this is like Channel 7, yeah. yeah, News Daily, all of these massive media outlets that, to be honest, I would have thought might have been a little bit more skewed to him. Um, but not one of the articles were being, um, you know, were, were dismissing what I was saying. They were all, you know, kind of just saying what I said, put it out as a fact. Um, and just left it at that. And for me, I knew I could control what I don't need to look at, but I couldn't control what I was going to receive. So um, all the articles that went out on Facebook and the reposts of the videos, all of that, I didn't look at any comments um, for my own, you know, mental health and yeah. safety. Because um, realistically, I knew I was going to cop some bad stuff. And you know what? A lot of the positives far outweighed the negatives. But when you're belittled to a point of just words you know and being called 
things that you probably, I mean, I've been called a lot of things just because, you know, I'm a, being a, an Aboriginal woman, mm-hmm. but I didn't think that that was going to, you know, hopefully can not continue to happen, but it did. And, you know, as much as I was able to shut out all the comments that were happening on social media, um, some person who was, you know, um, a troll made a fake account and decided to find my public accounts to, um, yeah, belittle me to a few words that as much as, you know, you try to block it out, it still hurts um, being called racist terms and yeah, being, being put down is not exactly the best thing, especially when you know a lot of the time you're in the right, but not everyone's going to think that. So I don't know. I I found that that was really difficult to take on because I couldn't control that. I can't control what people comment on my stuff. And I leave my comments open because I still get a lot of positive reactions and I want people to feel like they can um, be open with me about that stuff. But at the same time, um, yeah, it was really really tough but that was pretty much the only thing that came to me um it's very invasive to have it is somebody find your personal social media pages even if you are a public figure and like you said you have your comments open to find them and to use that page to uh, express you know racist sentiment or sexist sentiment towards you that is it's actually frankly quite terrifying that people do that oh yeah well, that's the thing as well, because I copped it from two lenses. Like, he didn't attack me about being young, mm. or maybe, uh, no, he didn't. But he, you know, was saying inaccurate things of how I got my job, um, which is not uncommon for women to be getting, which is ridiculous because mm-hmm. we're in our positions because we work hard and we get stuff done. You um, might be young, but you were also one of the youngest black female CEOs in this country yes, at one point. Literally. <laughs> I was 21 years old as an executive leader. Yeah. And you kind of just sit there and you're like, oh my gosh. Um, So yeah, I kind of had to sit there and be like, well, uh, is this a person that I value their opinion? Like I've got, you know, a great group of friends and family that I would rather ask them or hear from them their opinions on, you know, what was going on. Because I'll be honest, my family were really scared about it. They didn't know I was going to be doing it a monologue like that yeah. um and they were all like oh be like you know like we totally agree with everything but like you know I, I don't know if you should be doing this more and stuff and I'm like no like this is I have to like um I'm at this point where I'm it's not like I didn't believe it you know if I don't believe something I will be the first person to say no I don't believe in that I'm mm. not saying it um but this was a process, you know, everyone got together to really make sure that we we're making a statement. And it wasn't just about Sam Newman. It was the bigger picture that Sam Newman was driving, you know, like he is the was the epitome of the person that we don't want to see in media anymore. We don't want people that have such negative views on people and can get away with racial vilification and um, being able to have this opinion that is so far left that is demeaning of other people. And I just think that was really difficult because yeah, he showed what media really have been able to get away with for so long. And now I don't know if it's because of what's, you know, the current social landscape or, you know, I feel like people are getting hurt a little bit more at this time because realistically, what else are you doing other than being on your phone um, at this time? You know, like you might be working and stuff, but you're probably paying attention to what else is happening in the world. 
And I think that's the only reason why we were able to come out with something like that with so much of a positive reaction, um, regardless of the negative reactions. I think we still, I still was able to get a lot of positive out of it. And it has died off a lot um, now, you know, like I did get a bit of recognition for it, which was really good and support, which was pretty much all you can ask for by your company um, and, you know, people that you're working with. But yeah, I don't know. Hopefully, I mean, he's out of it now. And, and we even saw it with, you know, Pauline Hanson um, also coming off um, the Today of Channel Show. 9 as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, stuff is changing. I'm not going to say that their voices aren't going to be heard still because they will. They have platforms still. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least they're not getting access to the audiences that they typically would have. You know, they have to actually fight to get those audiences back, I guess. And you made an interesting point earlier about, you know, when people were worried about the backlash that you were copying and then whether you should be speaking up about this. But the reality is, as, yeah. as black women in the media, we are also really privileged to have this platform. So mm-hmm. if we aren't going to be using it to call out what we see as a truth in our media landscape and things that our colleagues deal with, that our peers deal with, if we're not going to call it out, then who is? And like you said, the, exactly. the tide is changing, but I feel like it's people like yourself who are a part of that. And, you know, if we if we stay silent, then what is going to change? Yeah, exactly. Like we're in this position for a reason. Um, and if we agree with what we want to call out, like we totally should be doing it. Because, yeah. Um, yeah, in reality, you never know what the next day is going to bring. So you might as well. <laughs> make a statement you know (laughs) you never know what it's gonna bring that's it um I mean look we have so much more to yarn about and I want to actually go to some of the things you've been doing to look after yourself your mental health and overall Mm -hmm. self-care tips um towards the end of this show but we're gonna be back in a moment to talk more about racism in the AFL we're gonna be joined by journalist Ahmed Youssef take it black You're listening to Take It Black. I'm Rachel Hocking with co-host Bianca Hunt. Now, we've been yarning about calling out the white boys club that makes up the majority of AFL commentary and changing tides. One person who's been particularly vocal about the AFL's racism problem is former Collingwood player Heretia Lumumba. Now, he recently shared his story with Ahmed Youssef from SBS's The Feed, Ahmed, thanks for joining us. I was wondering if you could start by telling us briefly what Lumumba told you about his time with Collingwood. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, So he basically told me how the nickname originated. Um, He talked about going out on a night out with some of his teammates um, in 2005. And one of them, uh, according to him, had too much to drink and started slapping his head, which was shaved at the time, and called him his little chimp, according to Lumumba. And um, that's how it began. And it slowly became to, began to become a problem for him um, as he started to sort of connect with his sort of roots in, in Congo, in, in, um, in Brazil, and sort of understand, I guess, his, his identity in a, gen, in, in a general sense. I mean, it's pretty horrific to hear anybody talk about racism that they experience, but to hear that it happens to people, you know, in high-profile positions in the AFL is always shocking to us. Uh, 
for you, Bianca, you discuss these issues on Yokai footy. You have Indigenous players come on to talk about it. What have they said about their experiences of racism and also about Lumumba's experiences? Well, I mean, the past couple of weeks, we've had the pleasure of having Andrew Cracker on, um, which he's been an incredible addition to the show. Um, but he was also there um, and he has backed up um, what Lumumba has been saying um, because he is an ex-Collingwood player as well. And I just think from what I've gathered is, of course, it's unfortunate um, that this is happening, but it's more of a lot of them have said, why do we need to be taking this stuff on in the place in our place of work? You know, if it's not acceptable in any workplace, um, why is it acceptable within on a field, you know, and like within a team, mm. because I think a lot of people get confused, you know, they might not think that they're in a job, but like in reality, you're getting paid to do a task and that is playing sport. Um, so therefore you should be as inclusive as possible with all your players and looking after each other. And I just think everyone now um, is speaking up a lot to Lumumba's um, experience because it has happened and it, it really needs to be addressed and, um, to what I've understood is there has been um, some issues with the club specifically. And I think now it's at that breaking point where if they don't address it, it's not going to change. Um, and you can't kind of keep having the same um, constant reaction happening, you know, like it's the same, um, you know, same club that had a supporter that called um, Adam Goods. Um, An ape. Yeah. you know an ape and it's just that sort of thing where you sit there and it's like is it is it a club thing is it shown from a club's perspective is it what the, the, the fans are supporting like you know you've got they've got a lot of um, black players on that team in Collingwood so they've really got to address it and I just think now um, hopefully with him speaking out is actually going to do something but he's not the only person that has had to deal with this you know like he was even saying um I was reading about it, you know, that it should come back to when Leon, Dav- Leon Davis was copying it back in the 90s. 1999, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it wasn't just him. It was Cracker, you know, Chris Egan. It's um, even Tony was saying that um, not him specifically at the club, but he's witnessed stuff or just heard things happening um, and had a yarn with Lumumba and, and he knows he's really hurt by it and he, so he should, you know. For sure. I mean, Ahmed, uh, part of your interview with Lumumba is talking about what he says was a, a culture which encouraged racism at the club. Yeah, definitely. And it's a culture he says he um, tried to address. And his teammate, uh, Brent McAffer, um, sort of corroborates his story about this meeting where he addressed not only his nickname, Chimp, but also some of the issues he felt there was with sort of culture at the club um, and he made a point to talk about it being a workplace um, and uh, McCaffer, uh says that after the meeting um, there was a joke about uh, Paul Seedsman whose nickname uh, according to him was Les um, uh, which had something to do with him potentially having a lesbian haircut mm. um, and uh, after the after the sort of meeting Lumumba had uh, set up, he says the players started thinking, should we continue calling Paul Seedsman this nickname? So they started to question 
maybe some of the prejudices they were holding and also the impact that these nicknames, which we, we know nicknames are a really big part of clubs and, uh, and footy culture, but the impact that certain nicknames can have and what they say about a person and the culture that they're supporting. Definitely, and it, it seemed um, it seemed like there was a realization of what had been happening to Lumumba during that period, um, but it started to go sour because Lumumba says in that the following week after he had addressed the nickname and, and raised his concerns, he had said that um, Buckley had made a joke at his expense. Um, saying, uh, talking about the sort of nickname regarding Paul Seisman, asking, is that okay, um, H? And Hennetier uh, mm. found that to be, at least from uh, from the article, he says that wasn't something he enjoyed. And that sort of led to the breakdown of their relationship. So I'll just bring us up to speed. Uh, Collingwood has said recently that it's going to be investigating itself Lumumba immediately called this process, frankly, insulting. Now we do have more news this week that Gamilaroi woman and legal academic Larissa Berent is going to oversee that Collingwood investigation. The Collingwood director, Peter Murphy, has said it has become increasingly clear that we were unable to understand Lumumba's experience, see and hear what he saw and heard. He said, this lack of cultural safety that he and others have recently spoken of is a matter of great concern. And he said, we are seeking to understand these experiences of racism and to ensure they have no place in the current Collingwood environment. Lumumba, meanwhile, is standing by his stance that this is not good enough. Uh, I actually interviewed Lumumba last Friday. I asked him if there was any way for Collingwood to make amends or if it was too little, too late. This is what he had to say. What would it take? Well, the first thing, I've made my demand very clear, is just an acknowledgement of the facts. And the facts that I want to acknowledge is, number one, that there was a culture that enabled and encouraged racist ideas through the forms of racist jokes. The second factor they need to acknowledge is that in 2013, when I spoke out against Eddie Maguire's comments, I was then punished as a, as a result of doing so. Um, so an acknowledgement is the first step. Once you've made that public acknowledgement because, it was, because the lies were spread or the misinformation was spread in the public forum, it then moves to another phase. The next phase is when we're sitting at the table or where we're, we're actually conversing. And then that is the, what, I, what I see is like an exploration phase, an exploration of which racist policies were in effect that affected myself and, and others. That then enables you to move to the next phase, which is, okay, now we need to eradicate those policies. We need to abolish them. And what we need to bring in is anti-racist policies. We need to bring in things that, 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 that uh, remove these racial inequities. And then once that is done, once these anti-racist policies are brought into, into action, um, then that's when you get a formal apology. That was Heretia Lumumba calling for a public acknowledgement of a racist culture at Collingwood Football Club and of the claims Lumumba has made against the club. 
He's also looking for an exploration or conversation with the club about its racist policies. And then the final stage, he says, is when they work to eradicate the club's racist policies. He says only after that should there be an apology. You're listening to Take It Black. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Take It Black. I'm Rachel Hocking here with Yokai Footies, Bianca Hunt and the feeds, Ahmed Youssef, where we've been talking about racism in the AFL. Now, one thing I discussed with former Collingwood player Heretia Lumumba last week was the way that the media has changed its reporting of his story in light of Black Lives Matter compared to when he first started speaking up a few years ago. I asked him what advice he has for newsrooms reporting on racism and race issues. This is what he had to say. I think you have to ask yourself, start by asking yourself a question. If you're discussing issues on racism and and there's only white people in the space or there's only a small number of of black people in the space, then that's your first mistake. Um, You have to understand and recognize that where Australia is at in terms of understanding racism, in terms of reconciling with its its brutal history and, and, and the, the ramifications of that brutal history in today. And so coming from that place, there has to be a level of humility, a humility in, in understanding that just because you're in a position of leadership, it doesn't mean that you know everything. And from my experience, regardless of where I've been in all sectors of Australian society, people in positions of leadership are at a basic level of understanding when it comes to racism. And so firstly, having the awareness that that's where you're coming from. And then the next phase of it is, okay, well, how can we make sure that the people who are making decisions and and commenting on this are people that are well-informed? Um, B, some fair points there from Lumumba. Yeah, for sure. I think um, when it comes to diversity in newsrooms, like just an example for myself, I'm the only person in AFL media that is um, Aboriginal, so a First Nations person. So when I came in here, it was not, I'm not going to say it wasn't diverse, it's just more of, um, it's different, you know, like having a point of view from my point of view um and coming into here a lot of opinions have been kind of opened up and a lot of um what's the word mindsets i'm not going to say have been changed but they've been opened Mm. um when they have people that come in here that do know what they're talking about because it is a matter of having the right person not just because they have a black face um but because they know what they're talking about and i think there is like i i feel like there's times where you know black fellas have it all the time with the imposter syndrome you know, of thinking, oh, we're, we're not the right person, even though we might be, um, we still kind of <laughs> feel like we aren't because we're to- told we're not, you know. You have to work um, 10 times harder just to get to the same point. 100%. Well, that's the thing, like, even for myself coming in here, I know no matter what, regardless, I have to work 10 times harder than a male car- counterpart mm-hmm. within this industry because I am a female. And, like, it's regardless of everything else, but, like, I haven't played 
um, at an elite level in AFL. I have played football um, and I played that for five years. So I do understand the game and I've understood it from an, like kind of, you know, now from an operational level and understanding how stuff operates here, but also from on the field and what it's like to cop stuff on there. But I've also been in workplaces. So I know what it's like to cop racism and, um, and stuff based off, you know, my age, like ageism, even <laughs> um, stuff around being a female. Um, but, but also totally just in terms agree, of being like, a player on the field, like historically there have been barriers to women being yes. able to play. So, I mean, that's the AFLW it. is a new thing. We need to remember that. Yes, exactly. Well, that's the thing. I remember when AFLW came on board, I was so excited. I was like, yes, finally, like there's a there's a, like an actual area our young girls can achieve um, when they grow up. And they now, you know, women can go from Auskick all the way to an elite pathway. I'm not going to say that they're at the same level as AFL just yet um, in terms of like, you know, pay, seasons, all of that sort of stuff, but it's a start, you know, um, and that's incredible. But yeah, when it comes to reporting on these things, like we all have as a, you know, as a black woman in the media industry, I've lived experience around racism and what that's like. I don't know what it's like to cop it as a man. Um, so I understand that, but I do understand what it's like to cop this stuff constantly in workplaces or just out in, out in society. Um, so I know I can bring that lived experience. And I mean, it's up to us as well to kind of be a little bit um, kind of, uh, what's the word? You still have to be a bit outside of what's happening, you know, in order to address what's the current issue with that current person. But relating it back to us is the way that we're showing that we know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, I just don't think a lot of, other people that don't have this lived experience really can speak to because a lot of the time it's from a complete outsider's perspective even when he's talking about you know from the people holding a camera you can tell the difference you know when it's it's like when black lives matter um protests were happening like when you see the footage that would come out of nitv compared to other um platforms it's probably you know nitv will show a little bit more of the positive things you know the mob speaking up and having our voice heard and all that sort of stuff whereas from other lenses it might be a um bird's eye viewpoint and being like look at all these people coming out during corona time you know and yeah. all of that sort of stuff so it's the way that not only the media as a journalist or whoever's at the front is telling the story but it's also how it's portrayed and I think he's got a really valid point that our media really do need to look indoors and walk around the room and be like, okay, do we have diversity within the workplace, but not tokenistic diversity within the workplace? You mm -hmm. still need the right people in there. And I just think, yeah, it's so easy to see someone of profile that happened to tick a lot of your boxes. They might be like me, you know, a young black woman. Oh, look, she's ticked the young part. She's ticked the woman part and she's ticked the black part. <laughs> so maybe she's she knows everything about black deaths in custody. No, like talk to me about things that I know and, yes. and I will pass you on to the people that know the answers to what you're asking as well. So it's just more of sharing it around, knowing you have the right people. And I think he's really hit the nail on the head when it comes to making sure that the people speaking these stories actually know where they're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. And look, what he's getting to as well is, is the way that stories like his are reported and how how yep. black people themselves feel when they share stories about racism, about discrimination with the media and the impact it has on their mental health. I wanted to ask you, Ahmed, I mean, you, did you and Lumumba talk about 
the difference that it makes when you have journalists of colour, black journalists, reporting on race and interviewing people who've been subject to racism? Yeah, he, he sort of talked to me sort of about how this was probably the first time he'd spoken to an African journalist. Um, I don't think he had prior to me and and also was like, I don't know, he sort of talked about how much more comfortable he was speaking to me versus other other reporters he had spoken to before. Um, and and I guess I guess it's a thing about sort of when we think about um, diversity in newsrooms and in the media at large, it's about what are the questions that are not being asked in interviews or press conferences? What are the contexts that people are missing that other people will be able to understand? Um, and I think that's a really important thing because um, the Lumumba story, is it's an old story. Mm-hmm. It came out in two, 2017. Um, it's not a new story. So I think it's a, it's a thing about how how are the media and how are we as journalists looking at these things and what questions are we asking? And then also, do we have enough people who can actually ask those questions? Yeah. And I mean, B, you said at the beginning of this program that you felt that your uh, statement, your monologue that you made on Yokai a few weeks ago was actually received pretty positively by mainstream press. Do you do you think that we're seeing a change at the moment in the way that mainstream media is engaging with issues of race and racism because of the Black Lives Matter movement that has just taken off? Well, it's so hard, right, because I don't know if it's given me a false sense of hope or it genuinely is changing. Like, I I believe that a lot in our media has changed in the last couple of years. Like, across my lifetime, it you know, I, I have seen change. Um, but the fact that we're still talking to these things and we're still validating our lived experiences and having to defend our lived experiences rather than people just being like, yes, that's your experience, you know, and let's have a yarn about it, not defending it or having a go or anything like that. I just think it's right now in this climate, people are forced to listen. Um, So whether that's actually changing mindsets, which I think it has, to be honest, Um, I've seen a lot of people in the last year really open their minds up, um, which is a good thing because then they become advocates, they become allies um, and support for us. But it's also that sort of thing where when everything goes back to not so normal, because I don't think normal was the best, um, but when everything goes back and people are back in their jobs and being able to be out and about without restrictions or levels of certain um, uncertainties, I really hope that this doesn't stop and that this isn't just a trending matter. Um, Because for a little while there, there was a bandwagon sort of situation going on, especially with Black Lives Matter. a lot of people thinking, oh, in order for me to be relevant on social media, I have to put a black square on my um, Instagram Mm. or I've got to speak out about this when I typically haven't before. I actually don't even understand where they're coming from, but I want to show my solidarity. Um, And I just think, yeah, the the tide, like when I said it in the monologue, the tide is turning, it's slowly turning and I think it's picking up, but I just really hope that once this, you know, year is done, that it's not stopping and people are still advocating for us and showing up. You know, it's enough to put something up on social media. Um, 
because that's like a, it's kind of like, it's not like a silent form of protest because you're technically putting it out there. So it's quite vocal, but it's more of when you're physically in a space supporting someone um, or people or a group of people, then I think that's the difference. So yeah, I don't know. Like right now it's kind of hard to judge because everything's quite uncertain, but I really do hope that people stick with it. Yeah. It's going to be a time, a question of time, I think. You know, this moment is uh, so big, so much bigger than the Black Lives Matter uh, moments we've seen in the past. And um, people are still, I guess, trying to figure out exactly what that is, if it has to do with the global pandemic that has accompanied it, or if people are just fed up and ready for systemic change. But whatever it is, this moment is different and we won't really know the measure of it until we see... Uh, the policies that are being implemented now, the changes that are being implemented now, what what the results are down the track. For you, Ahmed, are you seeing a change in the media's response to Lumumba's story and other black people's stories um, at the moment compared to a few years ago? I think there has been a, a change. I think, um, at least with the story that I put out, it was the first time two white Australian uh, teammates had come out in support of uh, Lumumba's claims. Which and is huge because in the past we'd only heard from the players of colour. So they spoke to the three Indigenous players, Leon Davis, Chris Egan and Andrew Cracker had come out in 2017 along with um, the American Cher McNamara. But it, this was the first time any white Australian team had come in um, for support. And so I think it was, I think it was interesting because I think people were surprised by that sort of revelation. And um, I think that's what sort of has maybe gave it a validation that these aren't just, these are one new players, but players they may not have expected. Take it black. It's obviously been a pretty tough period for any person of colour across the globe at the moment, uh, for black people, Indigenous people in this country. Uh, we know that reporting on deaths in custody always comes with dealing with them in our communities as well. It's um, something we can't escape the trauma that we live with and that we report on. I wanted to know for both of you as black people in this country, how you're going with this constant onslaught. It feels never ending at the moment. Are you finding ways to unwind and look after yourselves? B, I'll start with you because, you know, you had that big statement go out in the media. You talked about the impact on you. What have you been doing to look after yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I've changed the way in which (laughs) I've been looking after myself um, because literally when I had moved, because I moved from Sydney to Melbourne, right, and um, probably within a week of me kind of moving here, lockdown happened Um, so it was quite lonely for the first couple of weeks, um, especially during that lockdown period, because I couldn't have anyone over. I couldn't do, you know, I was going into work, which was fine. Um, and I could get that interaction, but not the same, you know, it's different when you've got friends, right? It's different when you've got people that just know you, understand you and all of that sort of stuff. And now you're having to kind of teach people how you react to things and learn and all of that. Um, so early on, I kind of, I don't know, I was probably sleeping a lot, to be honest. Like I was still doing all my work, but not putting a lot of pressure on myself to get everything done on a normal work day that I would if I was in the office um, because I couldn't put that much pressure on myself. And then 
I tried to do some drawing. I tried to do some dancing and stuff like that early on. Yeah, your dance video is um, a mad sis. <laughs> yeah, hey, that's him. So I was, it wasn't too bad. And then, and then things kind of opened back up. And, um, you know, a big thing for me is if I have a bad kind of day, I tend to shop. So I did a lot of online shopping during this time. <laughs> um, but now we've, of course, just been put back into lockdown um, on Wednesday. And that in itself, um, it was kind of, to be honest, like I was thrown thrown off it. Um, I was a couple of hours before I was um, about to film Yokai and I was trying to be in my own, you know, like I'm, I'm a presenter, I'm in my, you know, in, you can in just get ready to be on, on TV, right? And then I get hit with this news and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, great. I'm going to have to be lonely all over again. And um, yeah, I was actually in initially in a hotspot and I decided literally a couple of hours before um, those hotspots got locked down to just pack a bag and pretty much find retreat in a colleague's place. Um, wow. So I'm staying with the executive producer of Yokai, Carla, which I'm very thankful for because at least we've got each other for this period um, and we can kind of kick each other in the backside and just say, come on, we need to go for a walk or we, you know, we should do some exercise or um, do some painting or whatever it is. We're at least there and going to be able to have that sort of um yeah, hopefully that will work a bit. But we're in this, yeah, so we have this for another six weeks. I've decided um, as of the show this week that I'm going to be off socials for a bit. Um, I tried it like last week, but then I was like, oh, well, like my work really relies me on being in, in you know, on socials a little bit and putting stuff out there and promoting the show. But I was like, okay, if I promote the show and then I just sign off for a bit because realistically seeing a lot of it's not like it's negativity when we're speaking out on our issues it's more of it feels like it's never ending if we're continuously showing it and talking about it and having to justify our experiences for people that are ignorant and don't understand where we're coming from um so I think for myself you know like it's just I try to be as positive as, as I can on socials um which also gives a false sense of how I am. Um, so in order for me to kind of be able to come back in a positive way, but not constantly be positive, I need to take a break and just like acknowledge, acknowledge how I'm feeling and try and separate myself from, yeah, like one, seeing all my family in Queensland, being able to go anywhere and hang out and go coffee and, you know, go drive, go on drives mad, you know, like even people are going to the zoo and everything up in Queensland and yeah. And even New South Wales, you know, everyone's like just going to the pubs, having fun, just hanging out with mates. I don't have many mates here. So it's just more of, yeah, looking after myself. But I think I'm going to start doing a bit more like house parties or something, you know, the, um, the app. That app to do some <laughs> face calls and FaceTime calls and yeah. yeah, just pretty much surround myself with the laughs and fun um, virtually as much as possible. Yes, yes. Well, we'll have to try and do one this weekend. It sounds like you've, yes. got, you've got a good plan. So I'm glad you're yeah. keeping an eye out for yourself. <laughs> Uh, quickly, because I know we're running out of time, Ahmed, what have you been doing to take care of yourself during this tough period? Uh, I, I did the reverse uh, from Bianca. I moved from Melbourne to Sydney in February, so I'm sort of still new to the city. Um, I've been hanging out with some friends, um, sort of reading a few books here and there and making sure not to... Stay too much on social media during weekends when I'm not working, 
and to sort of get away from maybe the news um, and and sort of have a detox from that because most of the day, most of the week is reading everything, watching everything, checking social media about what's happening and just taking a break when it's your downtime I think is really important. So that's what I've been doing. Yeah, you've both kind of hit the nail on the head I think with like trying to get away from social media as much as you can because it's it's a blessing and a curse. You've got your mob there, you've got your, your people there that you can lean on and you can share how you're feeling, but it can also be, like you both said, this um, you know overwhelming constant barrage of information about the trauma in your communities. And uh, even though you, know, you trust the information in your feeds, if you trust the friends that you've got on there, it's still overwhelming and it can still be traumatic. So I've been doing the same. I've been limiting my social media intake, um, actually uninstalling Twitter on the weekends, which is a bloody good idea for anyone else out there yeah. on the cesspit of a site. Um, <laughs> thank you both so much for coming on and having a yarn. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thank, thank you so you. much for having us. And that is the 12th episode of Take It Black. I've been Rachel Hocking. To everybody listening, you can follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And please make sure you stay part of the conversation online by using the hashtag Take It Black. Remember to stay deadly and always take it black. Always work, always will be, always work, always will be.